We're at, I think, a very exciting juncture for electricity providers, which is that the demand for electricity is going exponential mm -hmm. and will, like you said, roughly, roughly triple from where it is today to get to a fully sustainable economy. So I would just be cautious about extrapolating from the past because the future is not like the past. The future is, is a massive increase in electricity demand and it's going to take everything we've got to just keep up with it. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. EEI 2023 featured a lineup of exceptional keynote speakers, and we're excited to be sharing a few of them on this podcast. In today's episode, you'll hear the full-length conversation between renowned technologist Elon Musk and EEI Chair Pedro J. Pizarro, who is also President and CEO of Edison International. The discussion spans topics such as electrification across the economy, the future of electric transportation, Tesla's decision to open up its supercharger network to other automakers, and much more. You also can watch the keynote on EEI's YouTube channel, EEI TV. Without further ado, here is the keynote featuring Elon and Pedro. Well, a lot has happened at Tesla over the last few years. And yep. uh, you've gone from delivering 50,000 yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> 50, cars in 2015, more than 1.3 million cars last year. That's a whole lot of growth. And so you look back over these last eight years since we chatted with you last there's faster or slower adoption than you expected? Any big surprises that you weren't expecting? Well, it's actually gone reasonably close to what I thought would happen, which is from that point, roughly a 50% year-over-year compound annual growth, which is a confidence that the Tesla team is the fastest growing large manufactured object ever, which I think the second is like the Model T back in the day, so about 100 years ago. So the, the Tesla team... I'm very proud to work with them. They've, they've executed incredibly well. And we anticipate something close to you know, 50% growth to continue. So uh, that is uh, very exciting. And it means that we should expect electrification of transport, especially passenger vehicles, you know, quite, quite quickly. It's, it, because the normal human instinct is to extrapolate on a linear basis. But really, if you look at the curves, electric vehicles are growing exponentially. So I think that's great news for those in the room. Um, <laughs> you have a lot of customers. Well, you have a lot of EV customers ready, and, and soon you'll have uh, many more. And, and uh, uh, forgive me for waxing on a little bit here, but the, I sometimes ask, well, when will EVs be uh, most of the cars? The important thing to remember is that, that you've got 2 billion cars and trucks out there, so, and about 100 million of, uh, per year new, new vehicle production, which kind of makes sense. It's sort of a life of about 20 years before a vehicle finally goes to the scrapyard. So, even if, if 100% of electric vehicles were, or new vehicle production was, was electric today, it would still take 20 years to replace the fleet. So just important to bear that in mind, percentage of new vehicle production versus, versus total fleet. But uh, I, I think we're, we're moving quickly to, to the point where, I know, probably half of all new vehicles made will be uh, electric. And I, I think that's, that's likely to happen, I think, before the end of this decade. But then there's still, you know, quote, another 20 years beyond that before that the fleet really becomes majority EV. So, yeah, and it's interesting because as we've done the analysis for California, right, we have a, an executive order that calls for all 
new vehicle sales being zero emission by 2035. Yeah. That's in line with the forecast that we've had in our own scenario analysis. That still puts us at about three quarters of passenger vehicles being electric in 2045 when the state gets to net zero. I mean, yes. That could be off by a little bit, but. It's, I mean, the larger point is that demand for electricity is going to be extremely high. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I, th- I, I, you know, hope this is good news. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, you know, the, the if you just do the rough back the envelope uh, math, mm-hmm. you need to roughly triple electricity to, to get to a, a fully electric economy. You know, roughly a, a third of power is electric. And then, you know, these are very rough numbers. Roughly a third is, is spent in transportation of various kinds uh, with, with the fossil fuels or hydrocarbons. And then roughly a third is heating. So even assuming the sort of current economy, economic usage, electricity per capita being uh, constant, you're looking at roughly a tripling of electricity demand. And the, so it's really going to take a tremendous effort to address this demand. This is uh, sort of, you know, I think, very good news for those producing electricity, but also entails a tremendous amount of work ahead um, in new production capacity and, and production capacity that is as sustainable as possible. Well, I mean, in fact, it requires a whole you know, system to yeah. be ramping up. It's, you know, you are dealing with the storage side and the vehicle side mm-hmm. and the charging side, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit. Yeah. We have the wires, but, you know, we need, we need support from all across the economy. Right? Uh, absolutely. It's, it's, really, it's really very much a joint effort. Yeah. I think it's, it's, a, it's a, very, obviously a very positive future for uh, the producers and distributors of electricity. I really couldn't ask for a better market that's going to grow in a, in a better way than this. But it is a tremendous amount of hard work, uh, as, as everyone here knows, to actually... Uh, put that generation in place and then transport it to where it, where it gets used and then dealing with the, the, the peaks mm-hmm. and then taking advantage of the valleys of power production. I mean, that's really where, like the Tesla Megapack that, we, that mm-hmm. you're just alluding to mm-hmm. is, is actually incredibly helpful is in sort of peak shaving the grid, basically charging up when you have uh, excess power production and then releasing it when you have insufficient power production or you want to peak shave. It's the, the I really believe that Stationary battery packs are absolutely the way to go, and um, it, it is actually the fastest growing portion of the entire Tesla business. So we're so our vehicles are growing 50 percent a year, but our stationary storage is growing at two to three hundred percent a year. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know, it's it's, it's really a big deal and can be really helpful. It's like it, it's just a obviously it's a battery at scale, and it buffers electricity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you need electricity buffered, then uh, it's, it's a good product. Well, and it, well, we'll get back to uh, the electric vehicle side in a minute, but I remember when you and I spoke a number of years ago, you already had that vision, global electrification. Yeah. And I think you've positioned your company, right, with storage fees, with solar. So this integrated view of where the market is going and how Tesla fits into it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there's fundamentally three, three pillars uh, to a sustainable energy future. One, you know, one is sustainable energy generation which is uh, solar, wind, hydro. I'm actually a fan of, of nuclear, of good, good old fission. I think it's underrated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could easily supply all of the world's electricity with fission, but mm-hmm. people, I don't know, some, sometimes their understanding of physics is not amazing, and so they get scared of things they shouldn't be scared of. So, so I'm very much pro... Anyway, it's basically, any electricity where you could say, okay, this is not going to meaningfully change the chemistry of the climate notions, you know, the atmospheric oceans. And so, anyway, so you've got sustainable electricity generation on one side, then you've got stationary batteries as the second pillar, which 
is needed for any kind of intermittent uh, electricity production. And by its nature, solar and wind are intermittent. So batteries and solar and wind go together extremely well. Um, and, uh, and then the third pillar is electric transport. Mm -hmm. So get all three of those pillars going, and we have a sustainable future as, as long as the sun shines and the wind blows, which is going to be a long time. Well, I think you know this idea of having a balance across these resources. You know, it takes a lot of tools in the toolbox. Let me get back to electric vehicles, though, because a couple levels deeper here. Sure. Um, we're talking some, you know, a few minutes ago. I think that was more on passenger vehicles. But let's talk a bit about about bigger ones. So, you know, we're all excited to see the first Tesla semi trucks uh, on the road in California, and that means a lot in terms of the viability of trucking systems uh, in the future. You also have the US EPA you know, proposed vehicle standards that could accelerate the medium and heavy duty electrification. You have yeah. California doing its thing as well as a number of other states. But ultimately the vehicles need to be economical for fleet operators. Yes. And particularly but, in Southern California where we have all the, uh, the uh, traffic coming up from the ports, a lot of those truck operators are not big fleets, right? They're small mom and pop owners. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so how, how quickly are you thinking that freight movement really goes electric and, and in a way that's affordable so that you can really serve that mix of owners out there? Yeah, well, I think I'd certainly encourage people to look at our semi-truck presentation um, because, in fact, the, one of the things we emphasize with an electric semi-truck is that it's, it's much more energy efficient than uh, a diesel truck, you know? So... And uh, I mean, you get things like regenerative braking. So, like, let's say you're, you know, going over a mountain range. Well, in a diesel truck, you actually don't capture that uh, the energy of height or potential energy. You you have to actually spend a lot of money on expensive brakes going down the other side, mm -hmm. so you don't mm -hmm. uh, run out of control. So, whereas a, an electric semi truck is able to recapture the the uh, energy, the gravitational potential energy, and and actually when it goes down the other side. Uh, does not overheat the brakes and, in fact, puts the energy back in the pack. Mm -hmm. So uh, things like that are incredibly helpful for the energy efficiency. And then just generally, if you look at the entire chain from electricity production, so take into account the efficiency of the energy produced, the uh, energy loss during transmission, energy loss during ch charging, mm -hmm. and then see how many miles were driven. You could take the same diesel that is used to power a, a truck, mm -hmm. use it and, and burn it for electricity, and still be at least 50 to 100% better uh, that with an electric semi-truck than, um, than if you put that diesel directly in the truck. Mm -hmm. uh, frankly, that's in line. We, we were talking earlier so, in our board meeting about just the efficiency of the electric. QED. <laughs> and was, it's efficiency of electric technologies, right? Yes. So it's a big part of the, uh, of the story here. Yeah, just fundamentally, combustion engines in, in, a, in a vehicle are constrained in mass and volume. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you're therefore limited in how much useful energy you can extract from a fuel when you have a very constrained mass and volume for a truck, whereas a, a power plant does not have the constraints of mass and volume. It can be heavier and, and bigger, obviously, and you can take the waste heat and run a, a steam turbine. Mm -hmm. So you can, you, your sort of Carnot efficiency right. of a power plant is dramatically greater than if it's burned in a mobile application like a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And even when taking into account uh, transmission losses and charging losses, they still don't account for the, the massive difference inefficiency of even a hydrocarbon being burnt at a power plant versus being used in a car. Yeah, which sets up you know, thinking about, well, what's the transition there? And, but ultimately, though, we're looking at a future that's electric. So we're, we're all, we all agree on the efficiency of the, the trucks. Let me state something that's plainly obvious. Bigger and more trucks, bigger and more batteries, right? So let's talk about the supply chain for batteries. And I want to say yeah. thank you because 
a number of the folks here uh, were able to get a tour of the Gigafactory uh, here in Austin. Yes, yeah. and actually I apologize, yeah, I, didn't, sure. I didn't properly answer your question with respect to trucks because, so, so semi-trucks, because they do use a large battery, mm -hmm. um, will, be toward, will be later than, than other vehicles um, because we need to have right. excess, sufficient battery supply in order to have a battery that's you know, maybe four or five times larger than it would be in a passenger car have that be in, in, a, in, in a semi-truck. That's the reason why we haven't gone to scale production of semi-truck yet is because there, there just weren't enough batteries. Mm -hmm. um, now, as the battery problem is solved, we will go to volume production with the semi-truck. And I, I'm pretty sure Tesla will be first on this, but we're expecting to reach volume production probably sometime next you know, end of next year is you know, what we're aiming for. And, and again, it's not going to be overnight all the trucks become electric because you, you, you have to reach a certain percentage of new semi-trucks built, then replace the fleet. The fleet is, you know, at least 10 years old in the semi-truck case. And so, you know, but I think it probably gets to 50% of new semi-trucks built within probably three or four years, maybe five years. And then it's another 10, 15 years before you see most trucks be electric. So that's, depending on, on your perspective, that's either really soon or far away. <laughs> or a little bit of both, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's, uh, that helps get a sense of the time scale here. I think a one level deeper though, and when you think about the actual underlying challenges in getting that battery scale. Again, a gigafactory here seems like it's a great advancement in terms of the manufacturing side. Yeah. But then how do you think about the supply chain behind that, the rare earth materials? Are you thinking about different chemistries over time uh, or other ways to make sure you're getting the supply of batteries you need for that kind of scale growth? Yeah, so the raw materials are not really an issue here, especially when you consider iron-based cathodes. So we think probably most of the batteries made will be with an iron cathode. Iron is extremely common. Mm -hmm. It's actually the most common element on Earth by mass is, is iron. Mm -hmm. Second is oxygen. Everything else is in the remaining roughly 38%. So we, we have more iron. Than, we're basically a rusty ball. That's what Earth is. Uh, <laughs> iron oxide, iron, iron and oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> iron and oxygen and a little, some silicon and a few other things. But it's, it's, it's funny that Earth is, by mass, almost two-thirds uh, iron and oxygen. So uh, we're not going to run out of iron, that's for sure. Right. And, and uh, especially for stationary storage, where mass and volume are not that important, and iron-based lithium-ion cell. So the thing about lithium-ion cells is, like, there's a lot of talk of lithium, but actually the lithium is like the salt on the salad. It's not the salad itself. Mm -hmm. So the, the costs tend to be predominate, and certainly the mass of the, the fact predominates in the cathode, which is, a, is going to be a metal, and uh, the higher energy chemistries are tend to be uh, nickel, um, and then the lower, en lower energy density chemistry will be iron. So to use nickel for kind of long-range stuff, uh, where, where mass and volume uh, really matter, and you'd use uh, iron where it's less important. Mm -hmm. So medium-range cars, stationary storage, iron, long-range cars, and aircraft uh, would definitely be uh, nickel. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about how we actually charge all those batteries. And uh, again, back in 2015, you, you described the need for fast charging to help long distance travel work, even as most of the charging we think you know, ends up happening at home. So you built a supercharger network. I think it's still you know, yeah. the benchmark in terms of public EV charging out there. You've made some really big announcements recently, been you know, yeah. fun to watch with, uh, uh, with Ford and more recently with GM. Just curious, you know, why are you opening up the network? You know, how, how do you see this creating competitive advantage and working with, uh, with others? Well, I don't know if it is a competitive advantage, but it might be actually competitive disadvantage. But the, 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 the purpose of Tesla, 
from the beginning has been to accelerate the advent of sustainable energy. And so, you know, we're, and I've been very clear with that. I, I, even when we went to IPO, I said, hey, look, some of the things we do may not be, you know, super profit maximizing, so don't invest if that's a problem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I encourage people to sell their stock if that's a problem. On the other hand, we'll make up for it with some epic products. So I think on balance, we'll be okay. And um, we went public at, uh, I think, one point, well, roughly just over one and a half billion dollars. So improved since then. <laughs> a bit, yeah. <laughs> you know, made some progress. But, you know, some of the things that maybe we could have done that were not totally profit optimizing. I mean, we, we open sourced all of our patents. So anyone can use our patents, which is uh, pretty unusual. So, you know, it's, and um, and we mostly do the patents just to stop like patent trolls and people people doing blocking actions. Mm -hmm. So we'll do a patent and then make it open so that there's, because like patents are like a minefield, you know, it's just like, you don't want those, just want a clear path to the future of sustainability. And then, you know, as far as opening up our network, I I actually don't even know if this is actually a good thing for Tesla or a bad thing. I mean, I think it's morally right, but it's, whether it's financially smart remains to be seen, but it it was uh, it would you know it was something that that would help the rest of the industry go electric. So we opened it up, and, and so we don't want to use it as kind of a walled garden or competitive weapon. It's if it's something that would help advance sustainable energy, it will do it. That's a, a powerful statement about the commitment to sustainability. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Elon, in doing, taking that step, might it also influence how you think about the evolution of your own charging network? So, for example, I think some of the other charging networks might have higher you know, voltages for, for fast charging. Is that something that you think would then lead you to migrate towards that, or do you think you're in the right sweet spot? Well, um, it depends on which cars we're talking about here. There's, there's a maximum rate at which you can charge a pack. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, once you exceed that rate, it's not relevant to that particular vehicle. Mm-hmm. You know, our latest superchargers will do over 300, uh, uh, yeah, 300 kilowatts, I should say. <laughs> 300 megawatts, that'd be more impressive. Uh, yeah, we, we, we had to go back to do some more planning if it's Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a big, big yeah. cable yeah. or very high voltage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we just crank it up to a million volts. Look, it's the same cable. <laughs> we'll start working on that. Right. <laughs> it's an electricity joke. So... <laughs> Yeah, if you, I mean, that I squared R heating is real, can really get you, but you just crank up the voltage. So, yeah, I mean, at 350 kilowatts, I mean, you really are exceeding the rate at which almost any battery can can take, like, can actually charge without damaging the battery. So, I think we're, we're, we'll be fine on that front. Our voltage for a long time has been roughly 400 volts, plus minus 30. And with uh, the next generation, we're, we're doubling that to the uh, 800 volts. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's, not, it's not as big a gain as it may seem, but it's, you know, it's uh, slightly better. Mm-hmm. So, the, our, our superchargers will be able to operate at either 400 or 800 volts mm-hmm. um, and just, you know, impedance match to whatever the vehicle is that wants to be charged. Well, again, it's a really fascinating move, and it'll be interesting to see how other OEMs, you know, approach uh, the Ford and GM announcements. Yeah, like I said, we're, you know, really just trying to do the right thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, it's clear with uh, Jim Foley and Mary Barra that you know we, we will support uh, GM and Ford cars on equal footing, no mm-hmm. you know special status for for Tesla vehicles and that kind of thing. It's got to be fair. So yeah, that's our commitment. We'll stick to it. 
sounds like it's in line with uh, making your patents open source, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, all of those chargers are going to drive the need for a lot of infrastructure on our side of the grid. Yes. I, I, actually, I, I can't emphasize enough. We need more electricity. <laughs> 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 However much electricity you think you need is more than that is needed. Yeah. I, I assure you. You, if you're thinking, should I build this incremental production capacity of electricity? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So you, so you have a room <laughs> as fast of, as possible. <laughs> amen. So you have a room full of folks here. Some of folks are you know, members of EEI, regulated utility uh, folks. There's suppliers here, vendors. It's a whole community that's, that's needed here to make this happen. We also need the support of government, right? And so it's been yeah. exciting to see the IRA funding. We are talking about this earlier today. IRA, IIJA transformational for the U.S., yeah. but we still need more help, right, than getting permitting and siting reform, for example, to, man, to get the steel in the ground. I feel, I feel the same way. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, man, I mean, we're, we're, like, practically making construction illegal in this country. <laughs> <laughs> and especially in California. I mean, you know, no offense, like, I lived there for a long time, and I still, I still, I still spend a lot of time in California, yeah. FI, and I'm still pro-California. <laughs> Not easy sometimes. Um, Remember, I am a, I am a Californian. Be nice. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, you know, you, even then you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's being recorded. I mean, I mean, try getting a permit to read your kitchen in L.A. I mean, it's a friggin' ordeal. But, but, honestly, but you know what? But, Elon, that, that is, it, it, it is really something we're all dealing with across all states. It's federal permitting. It's state level. I know. It's, it's, it's yeah. like we're, we're, we're just like, you know, Gulliver's Travels and each one of those regulations by themselves maybe not so bad, but it's like a like yeah. you've got a thousand, ten thousand little strings, you know, holding the giant of America down, frankly, from a regulatory standpoint. So that so that's one part that we need to solve and I appreciate Tesla's engagement in policy space, you know, which, which you've done. Yeah. There's another part of this though, which is the collaboration between utilities and our customers, whether it's Tesla or somebody else. I was out in um, in Barstow, California recently, SE territory, and I was seeing the upgrades that our team was making yeah. to accommodate the large supercharger station. Because, you know, Barstow, for those of you who don't know, smack between the drive between uh, LA and Las Vegas, right? So popular spot for charging. Yeah, I've charged there. <laughs> so I think this one was going to open, uh, you know, right, right, the yeah. following weekend or something. So some of these superchargers are like major power draw, oh, like yeah. serious. Right, right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so it, they are, and that means we need good collaboration. One of the things that EEI has done is reach out to the customer community, whether it's charging companies, whether it's large fleet operators, to get that collaboration. But um, I'm, I'm curious, from your perspective. What more do we need to be doing to collaborate better with you and with the OEMs and, you know, with, sure. frankly, your charging competitors? Because we need everybody to get this ecosystem going. Well, I, I guess uh, anything we can do to make things go faster would be, would be great. And um, it's, obviously, it's not all in your hands. There's, there's um, a lot of permitting and, and whatnot that has to happen. But I, I really can't emphasize enough, we're, we're at, I think, a very exciting juncture for electricity providers, which is that the demand for electricity is, is going exponential mm -hmm. and will, like I said, roughly, roughly triple from where it is today to get to a fully sustainable economy. So I would just be cautious about extrapolating from the past because the future is not like the past. The future is, is a massive increase in electricity demand, and it's going to take everything we've got to just keep up with it. So I think speed... Like just figuring out like how do we move faster? How do we have faster deployment of electricity? And that's it. the whole everything matters from generation to transmission to the local substation. And um, and I understand there's like, like quite a long lead time on like step down transformers. 
So, man, I hope Kelsey doesn't have to make those too. Um, <laughs> but uh, look forward to it. We we need more of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, my my, my challenge to this the the Mega Pack team is like, okay, guys, look, let's try to get it to where you just take the the, the big cables, mm -hmm. the power cables, and you just plug them in. You know, no substation. Uh -huh. You know, that'd be sweet. <laughs> you know, you just uh, just take the big metal wire and uh, clamp it down here, uh -huh. and um, you're done. Uh, we might have our engineers talk a little bit about that. I mean, it's it's, it's totally doable. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you don't go too crazy on the yeah. voltage, it's totally doable. You know, you do start having these like you know, can't have the wires too close together because of arcing limits and stuff. But um, but but generally, like uh, if they look at mega pack deployments, uh, one of the limiting factors is the substation equipment mm -hmm. to do voltage step up. You know, and um, and so we're just looking at like, okay, how can we make? What are all the things that? slow us down to getting to a sustainable energy economy, and then we just tackle whatever appears to be the biggest issue. And I think, as, as we'll know, we also have the sort of consumer side power wall, which is mm -hmm. obviously very tiny compared to the mega pack, but it's also can be very helpful in a neighborhood for, for balancing power and offer having, having the power walls operate collectively to, to smooth out the power in a neighborhood, which we've got working quite well in Australia at this mm -hmm. point. Um, and I believe we've got some test efforts in California as well. No, in fact, you, you, we do with SCE, uh, virtual power plant efforts. Yeah. PG&E has some as well. That, that's a, it's a good transition to where I wanted to go next, which is when you think about that interaction with the customer. Right? Now, clearly, we are interacting yeah. with the customer. You are as well. It can be through virtual power plants. I'll, I'll throw in bidirectional charging into the equation too, right? So you put all these things together, technologies enabling some different relationships with the customer. What's your vision for you know, how, how that evolves over the next year. Well, like I said, I can't emphasize enough that we're, we're just going to hit um, constraints on electricity production and, and uh, transmission en masse across the board. So that's why I'm like, I know obviously it takes time to plan for and permit and build a new power generation plant, but, but I, that's why I'm encouraging everyone to start now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what your plans are for future electricity demand, but it's going to be, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be much higher than what, what, what you currently think. Electricity demand is going to be, well, I mean, necessarily must be three times what it is today in order for us to have a sustainable energy future. So that means power plants, transmission. I mean, there's always some, some I think there's, some, there's, there's some, to some degree we can improve the power throughput of some of the lines by jacking up the voltage. Mm -hmm. You know, it may require separating cables a bit more, but and also you need to step up, step down transformers. So the different cables too. So just we have an area here called the hub with a number of companies that have different technologies. We had Bill Gates uh, join us yesterday, and you know with a number of the companies uh, that Breakthrough uh, Energy Ventures is uh, supporting. One of those was a company that's making a you know cable that can carry a lot more capacity. Right. So I agree that all those technologies will be important. By the way, as we do the analysis for California wide. Yeah. We do see a future where California gets in at zero in 2045, and it's not f quite fully electrified. It's mostly electrified, yeah. right? But there's other other tools in the toolbox, well, and that's at least then, and that's at least a 60 percent increase in load, whereas uh, load has least. been flat for decades now. So it's coming. And we agree. Okay, so I, I, I like I think that's basically that's will be much more load than that. It, it, may, it may be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by like a lot. Uh. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, we're doing good math I mean, in our head here. It's just everything's going to be electric. And I, I think the actually the average power usage for a person is going to increase 
uh, a fair bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, an interesting thing to consider is like the is total power used by humans on average over time. You know, and you say like you go from not that long ago when the best we could do was kind of make a campfire. So you say, and I'm talking like electricity and, and thermal energy per, per human was extremely tiny if you even go back 200 years. We, we literally had to, you know, burn wood or coal locally uh, to gain heat. Uh, there was no electricity, you know, the, the, so the, the, and, and, and even if you take all of the, like all the steam engines and everything and divide that by total number of humans, power usage per human, uh, thermal, electrical, or otherwise, um, was a minuscule 200 years ago, and even less uh, 300 years ago. Now it is uh, incredibly high, and it is rising. And and this is, and, and you're going to see, I think, a lot of electricity usage by the sort of neural net uh, data centers as mm-hmm. well, the mm-hmm. heavy power draws. So, um, in fact, I think one of the scaling constraints for AI is going to be power availability. That they are quite power hungry. So you've got you've got um, basically. Average energy usage per person increasing dramatically, and a transition from burning hydrocarbons to things that are more sustainable. Anyway, the point is, yeah. uh, is it's going to be three x current, um, and I think that three x number is probably probably happens around twenty forty five ish. So, this is the thing about exponential uh, growth is it it really is counterintuitive, and will you know actually. Exponentials are it, it tend to be sort of underestimated. Just mm-hmm. you know, it just um, there's a long tradition of that. It's cell phones, other technologies that yes. you know humans have not been able to see escalating. Uh, you know, this, this brings up uh, a different question area around some of the other places where electrification is going to play a role. So we you know we spent a long time talking about cars, but you know, building electrification maybe another important you know, tool to help reduce emissions over time. You know, again, California, different from other states, but we think that we're going to see something like uh, you know, 30% of all buildings needing heat pumps to get to the 2030 targets that the state has, yeah. 90% by 2045. How much focus are you putting on the building side of electrification right now, and is that a place where you think Tesla might go? Well, I mean, we have the power wall, which is, but that's, that's somewhat more of a... Supports it. Support. Yeah, that's like a, for, for homes, homes and small businesses with power wall. We would certainly appreciate support from utilities with bringing power walls online. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, one of the you know selling points of a power wall is to give um, uh, the homes like some amount of protection against brownout, blackout type of thing. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we, we 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 do get some pushback from utilities about enabling a sort of uh, cutoff switch because if you if you, don't, if you if you don't cut off power to the grid, if you if the grid loses power, then pointless. You just end up Say if you've got if you've got you know pushing electricity you know back onto the grid and it's kind of pointless it doesn't doesn't work so we would appreciate some support in approving and installing the backup switch which really just enables homeowners to have power if for whatever reason there's, there's the grid's down for some reason so that that would be most most appreciated. <laughs> 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 and we'll continue to engage in that. Also, from the utility side, want to make sure we're managing, you know, safety, reliability issues. But yeah. you know, it's making sure we're understanding the technology and engaging with your team to to work through to the details. Yeah. So, but I mean, it's, it can be pretty helpful. And then, like I said, the the power walls, you know, operating collectively can help to stabilize the grid in in a particular neighborhood. I, I do think like local power generation 
uh, you know, basically rooftop solar and uh, with an accompanying battery pack is, is a helpful part of solving the energy problem because there's a lot of neighborhoods where it's hard to get incremental power to that neighborhood. Like, because you need like more substations, you need more, you know, overhead wires. And then in a lot of places, that can be extremely difficult to achieve, you know, because just from opposition from people not wanting additional electricity wires overhead and, and not wanting to expand substations. So, there's so sort of a solution to this is where, this is where local solar and, and local storage helps alleviate some, some very thorny. Uh, situations where you just can't, it's extremely difficult to get more power to that neighborhood. So a little bit of local power generation is pretty helpful. Well, in fact, when, when we do our, our analysis for California, we see the state needing to add something like 80 gigawatts of bulk power renewables and yeah. 30 gigawatts of bulk power storage. But we're also counting on 30 gigawatts of distributed renewables and, and 10 gigs of distributed storage. So okay, great. We see, we need all the tools in the toolbox for, what, for what's coming ahead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one other touch point you've had with our sector has been the work that you're doing here in, uh, in Texas, where, as I understand that you're, you announce an energy retail business. Uh, with a subscription program, right, that allows Powerwall sort of customers yeah. to, uh, I think it's a $30 monthly flat fee. Uh, yeah, for, I mean, we're, we're trying different experiments. Yeah. So we're just, we don't know what, what actually makes sense, but we're trying different experiments to see what what might work. Um, so, yeah, for sure, trying to figure out, like, can Powerwalls all working together help stabilize the grid, which they can. We've mm -hmm. actually done that many times now. And, um, and then, of course, our mega pack, which is, is great at the, sort of utility or heavy industry level. So, yeah, it seems, you know, we're just trying to, like I said, help foster a sustainable energy future, and it's going to take many, many, many different technology solutions in different arenas to, to solve this uh, kind of tripling of electricity demand and provision problem. Well, let me, um, let me shift topics a little bit. And you mentioned AI earlier in the context of being one of those drivers of yeah. electricity uh, uh, load increases. But you've also been pretty outspoken about both the potential and the risks of AI. I think a number of us are moving really quickly right now with use cases on how we use it. I'll give you one example. At Edison, uh, last year, we did almost 200,000 asset inspections in high wildfire risk areas using drones, just generating terabytes of data, you know, great ability to capture images all around. There's no way humans could process all those images, so we've been using an AI-enabled tool to down-select the images that we're going to look at. We're looking at other use cases right now, but, but we recognize there's risk too. So I love your thoughts about, you know, broadly across the industry, and then if you think about our sector, how should we be thinking about AI from your perspective and both the, uh, the opportunities and the risks there? Well, I mean, I've had many sleepless nights thinking about AI. Mm -hmm. So I am worried about AI on the downside. Mm -hmm. You know, AI is just this, it's sort of a technology like, like nuclear. It's extremely powerful, but it could get out of hand. And um, so I, I have been struggling with this question for a long time of what to do to mitigate, mitigate um, AI existential risk. And I've been a, a big proponent, actually, of regulation, of at least some, having some oversight by the government, uh, you know, acting as kind of a referee to make sure that uh, AI companies don't go do super dangerous things and nobody's even watching them or there's, there's, no, there's no sort of agent of the public, which is really regulation when it's done, done right, is they're, they're trying to oversee the good of the public and make sure that companies don't kind of cut corners or break rules or do things that would endanger the public. 
And this is the origin of the FAA and NHTSA and various regulatory organizations that exist. And, and now those regulatory agencies only came into being after a lot of people died. You know, a lot of things went wrong. Mm -hmm. So with the AI, I don't think we can afford the luxury of like waiting until it goes wrong, you know. <laughs> so I think we need to be preemptive uh, on this front. So I've had a number of conversations with uh, world leaders, you know, including, you know, very senior uh, people at, in China and uh, around the world, Europe. I'm actually heading to Europe tomorrow to have some AI safety conversations uh, with, with some of the country leaders there. Is because I think I think this is the kind of thing where the world needs to work together on, on AI safety. It's a really big deal. I can't emphasize this enough. So I was somewhat encouraged by China's willingness to engage in AI regulation. And I did point out that um, you know if you get some digital superintelligence, it might be in charge of China instead of you. <laughs> and I'm not sure you would like that. <laughs> that, that, that. That argument seemed to resonate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, since you're bringing up China, you know, and you're you're very active there. You're also active uh, with government leaders. A little off script here, but uh, as you think about U.S.-China relationship and how it helps navigate or hurts, and as we try to navigate, whether it's AI, whether it's actually competitiveness for your products, uh, both in the U.S. And, and Chinese markets, how are you? thinking about how that evolves and, and what's the end game here in terms of being able to work at both markets? I don't know what the end game is, but um, I can say the mid game is going to be spicy. <laughs> 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 yeah. Have you, um, with your operations in China, um, have you, you feel like you've enjoyed good support and are you comfortable with uh, yeah. intellectual property? And yeah, we, we, we've actually gotten very good support in China. Tesla has the only uh, fully foreign-owned car factory in China, mm -hmm. and we do very well in the domestic market in China. And our, uh, you know, our Shanghai factory is our highest-performing factory globally. So it's a, it's a very impressive team that Tesla has in China, and mm -hmm. the work ethic there is incredible. So you know, I think it's going to be an interesting yeah. future. You know, we are entering a phase where U.S. Will, will not be the biggest economy in the world. And, and there's nobody alive today who can remember when the United States was not the biggest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. So it, it is a, it's going to be a little probably discomforting at first uh, to, to a lot of people to have uh, China be probably you know, two or three times the size of the U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's already uh, higher. The industrial output, manufactured output, is already significantly higher than the U.S. Uh, and that will increase. And they've had a significant investment focus in electric vehicles. Uh, yes. Um, China is actually, of any large country, the most forward-leaning yeah. uh, with sustainable energy. Um, so they have massive solar projects, wind projects, and have done the most with respect to electric vehicles of any uh, large country. Of, of smaller countries, Norway is uh, the leader. But um, for any larger, very large economy, it's, uh, China is by far the most uh, forward-leaning for sustainability. Well, let me pull up from Tesla. And you do have a few other places where you spend your time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, again, I mentioned in introducing you, but SpaceX, Twitter, boring company, Neuralink, which is really exciting. I saw you had some uh, approvals yeah. recently. But offering free brain chipping as you leave the uh, <laughs> conference. 
Can I suggest a few folks to go first? Uh, uh, Sit right here, you won't feel a thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, joking aside, uh, <laughs> you're making a personal choice to spend time across these. Is there, is there a common thread in terms of mission across all of these? And, uh, you know, and, and what, what excites you most about your portfolio? Well, I mean, the, the aspiration with these various things is to maximize the probability that the future is good for civilization. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, the future is just a set of probabilities. Like, we don't know, you know, for sure what's going to happen. Um, but to the degree we can shift the probabilities towards um, a positive future for civilization, I think we want to do that. And to me, this is really just, you know, if you're sort of long-term thinker at all, it's, this is naturally what one should want to do because, you know, how can we really exist in the absence of civilization? I mean, you can see what it's like. Just watch, you know, Naked and Afraid. This is what, that's when you don't have civilization. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, civilization pretty great. So I think we want to keep it going and, um, you know, and, and uh, keep advancing civilization. So um, I think we, we can, we should try to expand the scope and scale of consciousness such that we are better able to understand the universe and our place in it. So I would call, you know, my philosophy a philosophy of curiosity. And, um, and while we will all die as individuals, civilization can continue in theory for a very, very long time, billions of years or more. So we should uh, try to make sure that happens. So the, these various things that I'm doing are, are trying to shift the probability of future being good. Now, I hope that's not, it may turn out that some of these things, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, so hopefully, you know, those good intentions do not translate to something bad. But I think the road to hell is, is mostly paved by bad intentions. And, uh, you know, once in a while, there's a good intention paving stone in there. But the intent is to maximize probability the future is good for civilization. So with, in, in the case of, say, Neuralink, it's like, well, how does that affect things? It's like, well, if, if we are to link the sort of the path of the AI to uh, human will, then what could act to impair that? That linkage, and, and we're getting pretty esoteric here. But one of the issues is the bandwidth between your cortex and your computer, or your AI, the AI extension of yourself. And if that bandwidth is too low, then the computer will simply be bored. You know, as the bandwidth gets very low, you you effectively have a very thin straw between yourself and the AI extension of yourself. Now, now we are already cyborgs. When you think about the fact that your phone and your computer are an extension of yourself, mm -hmm. um, and probably you know, I think most people, if you forget your phone somewhere, it's like having missing limb syndrome, you yes. know. And then you're like sort of patting your pockets, and it's like the phone is basically an extension of yourself. So starting with you don't know anybody's phone number anymore. Yes, right? exactly. I, I had this like <laughs> nightmare, like where I was <laughs> stuck at a party and someone else had taken my phone. <laughs> And, and, and so I had their phone, but I couldn't use it. And, <laughs> and, and then they were like, so well who, well, who should we call? I'm like, I don't know anyone's number. <laughs> <laughs> so Neuralink. So, so you, you don't even know who to call. Yeah. How, how do you, it's supposed to happen to, it must happen a lot. You know, it's like, you don't know anyone's number and yeah. you have, they've got your phone and you, you, you can't call whatever, an Uber or anything. Yeah. And, uh. You're just stuck. <laughs> so I like that, that idea of increasing the bandwidth between the computer assistant and the brain, but apparently we also need a safety lock to make sure we don't lose the computer in the process. Elon, this has been terrific. 
And I hope that it's not uh, another eight years before we see you here. Appreciate all the efforts you have and frankly, the, the sentiment you provided around trying to improve humanity and recognizing that the collaboration that we have between our sector and your company um, is critical to helping humanity deal with climate. So thank you so much for doing and please know we're all stand ready to continue to partner to make this transition a real thing. Sounds good. Everybody, let's thank Elon very much. All right, thanks guys. that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.